I hope you have your Bibles. I hope it's open to Matthew 5. If you did not bring a Bible, there should be one right in front of you. It is absolutely essential that you have your Bibles and that they are open and that we are in it together as the people of God who are centering our lives on the authority of God's Word. Amen? That was weak. Amen? That was fake. All right, so (laughs) I'm kidding. Now here's what you're going to need to do, all right? You need to go two places in this sermon. The rest of the places I'll put on the screen so that you can see them. You don't need to be flipping all through your Bible, but why don't you find, if you've got not yet, Matthew 5, also find Psalm 37. Because we're going to go to Psalm 37 at point number three. But we're going to be in Matthew 5 for a considerable part of this message. And while you're opening up even to Psalm 37, getting ready to go there as well, even though we're going to begin at Matthew 5, let me tell you about something that uh, if you're old enough, you're going to really remember this. Do you remember when the federal building in Oklahoma City was bombed? Remember 1995? Timothy McVeigh exploded that bomb. There was a man named Bill Daly who lost his sister in that explosion. And so the Daily Oklahoman, the local newspaper, did an extended interview. Now I want you to hear this because this is really going to factor into what we're going to look at from Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. They did an extended interview with Mr. Daly, or Mr. Day rather. This was a while after the bombing. And the whole article, the entire article, it was remarkable due to the lack of bitterness, the lack of vengeance in Bill Day. This was what got the attention of the the Oklahoman, or the Daily Oklahoman, to even do this interview. They interviewed him, and it marked, by the way, the lack of vengeance, the lack of that vitriol, that bitterness, it marked so many of the victims' families. They began to actually run a series on this. They asked Bill Day why he was not bitter, though his sister lost her life at the hands of Timothy McVeigh. And here's what Bill Day said, and I want you to hear this. Because I am a Christian, I believe no one is going to get away with anything, and it's more fearful to fall into the hands of God. No one is going to get away with anything, and it is more fearful to fall into the hands of God. Now, this produced in Bill Day meekness, and that is the subject that we're going to learn. We're going to learn all about it. We're going to see what it looks like. We're going to see what it actually means, and then we're going to see the psalmist do an entire psalm built around what it means to be meek. So if you're just joining us, we're in a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're looking at the eight Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5. These are, now listen, here's what the Beatitudes are. I suppose you could do what a lot of preachers do, and that is hyphenate be in attitudes they are the attitudes about which we ought to be you could do that but that's to me that's kind of weird you could just say these are the the eight virtues that jesus is preaching on there are eight virtues that actually now listen this is critical that jesus perfectly possesses 
He perfectly possesses them. And he is, this is just as critical, and he is transforming all of his disciples into possessing them as well. So the Sermon on the Mount is really a sermon by Jesus to show you what he is making your heart look like, Christian brother and sister. It's going to look like his one day fully and perfectly, but that work is ongoing even now on this earth. And the rest of the sermon, when you get past the Beatitudes, is showing us exactly how Jesus lived and how he is going to help us live so that we can be like him. Not one of these virtues, not one of these beatitudes, and this is key, is naturally possessed by anybody. Nobody outside of Christ, nobody that does not have a new heart that Jesus has given to them, the moment you have put your faith in his death, burial, resurrection, you have to have that new heart to be able to live these, and he is cultivating them to ever greater degree in everyone whom he has given a new heart and he has saved. Nobody outside of Jesus can live these virtues the way that Jesus demands. And you don't need, nor do I, to possess one or two of them. We must possess all of them. All of these are what he is creating in us, and they increase as we learn from Jesus. So Christians, the Beatitudes, there's eight of them. We're at the third one today. The Beatitudes is what our hearts are made increasingly to look like through the power of the gospel and the grace of Jesus. Now, if you want to know, I mean, listen, I would think you'd want to know this. I mean, I really want to know this. Don't you want to know what Jesus is even doing in you? I mean, that's not so abstract and so general that you could say, well, he's helping me to be a better person. No, he's really not. He's helping you to become exactly like him. And this is exactly what he looks like. If you take his spiritual heart and you put it out on a table, put it under a microscope, this is exactly Jesus perfectly. And this is precisely what he's doing in you. It's precisely what he's doing in me. The very first virtue that he is working to an ever greater degree in us is that we be poor in spirit. Meaning this, if you remember from two weeks ago, that we would realize that there is nothing naturally in you. There's nothing naturally in me that would move God to save us. It's not like all of a sudden you made it to a plateau and God said, finally, you're good enough to save. Listen, nobody is ever good enough to save, which is why it's called grace and mercy. The second beatitude, the second virtue after poor in spirit, that's the ground one. That's the ground floor of what God is doing. Everything springs from that. You do not even come into the kingdom unless you are seeing that I in myself am not pleasing to God. He must do something to save me. I cannot do it. I'm, I'm recognizing my sin. And it moves you to the second. It moves me to the second that we would mourn, that we would have godly grief that would move us to forgiveness or rather repentance. That we would grieve over our sin. Now listen, the sermon series is not being effective unless this last, this past week, 
you became more aware of godly grief in your heart. So I would ask you that. Are you becoming increasingly aware that, you know what, you are a sinner. I am a sinner. Tim Ackley is a sinner. I might be called a saint because Jesus has saved me, and so are you, brother and sister. You're a saint. You're a saint by identity that sins. And when we see that, it begins to create an increasing pain and sorrow in us. It ought to. If it is, that's the work of Jesus. If it's not, you're not sitting at his feet and learning. If you're sitting at his feet and learning, your sins will begin to hurt you. Your sins will begin to grieve you. You will mourn over this awareness, I have failed my Lord and Savior again. Now listen, you won't climb down into despair, not if the gospel is doing the surgery. You will flee to the cross knowing that he is willing once again to take that sin, forgive you, and make you stronger, make you more like him. If you're ending in despair, you're not seeing the gospel. It moves you to Jesus. The third follows poverty in spirit and godly grief, and it's called meekness. Here we go. I'm going to give you the demonstration of what it means to be meek. So point number one, the meaning of meek, I'm going to demonstrate it for you. And then I'm going to define it for you. So look at Matthew chapter 5. Let's get right in the text. Here's what he said. Blessed. Now, I know this is annoying. Look at me for a second. I can't let you go on yet. Blessed, divinely satisfied and happy you will be because you are participating in the very life of God. That's what that word means to a Jewish person. That's what it means to us. You are, of all people on the world, the most happy. Or at least you should be. Why? Because God has saved you, and God is making you like him through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Blessed are the meek. Now, last week, someone said to me, or during this past week, when I mentioned that we're going to talk about what it means to be meek, their response was, isn't meekness kind of a negative thing? And what that person did was capture the sentiment of the world. The world is, our culture is, looking at meekness as un, an undesirable characteristic. It's almost never going to be on the resume of a CEO. Listen, you're not going to see meekness on the grave marker of the rich and famous. Very rarely, if ever. It's a word rarely found, even in... Modern music or modern music, uh, movies. Last night, we made Andy watch a movie that Denise and I loved when it first came out a long time ago. It was Robin Hood uh, with Kevin Costner. And we're watching the movie, and there's the word meek, and it was startling. Maybe because I'm, you know, sensitized to it, because that's what we're preaching on. But you don't see that word in modern parlance. You don't see it in modern vocabulary. Unless, of course, you're listening to the death metal group called Cannibal Corpse. Lovely, lovely group from Buffalo, New York. They have a song called A Skeletal Domain. Please do not go out and listen to this. Some of you I know are already getting on. Don't do that. Here's their lyrics. Survivors of this morbid fate, the reborn meek, not live, not dead. 
you know, Sunday morning material right there to get you ready for worship. That's about it. You're not going to see the word meek anywhere in modern language, anywhere in modern culture. So I trust that you're going to agree with me that the world has fallen out of popular use. So what does it really mean? We need to recover this. I don't really know if we know what it means. I know you've got your pop definitions of it, but let's see what it really means and if it changes our mind as to how it looks in our lives. You can't really, by the way, define this word with a single word. Meek cannot be defined by a single word. It is really broad. So let's see what it looks like demonstrated. Since you can't just throw a word at it and define it, let's look at what it looks like. Let's see what it looks like when it's demonstrated. And for that, we're going to go back and we're going to take a whirlwind tour through the Bible. You ready? Now hang on. Abraham. You remember this? The servants of Abraham are quarreling with the servants of his nephew Lot. They've got so many animals, the land cannot sustain both of them and right where they are, so they're quarreling about the best grazing land. Now here's what meekness looks like. Abraham demonstrates it. He's the older. He's the uncle. The land was given to him by promise, not to Lot. Lot was a hanger-on. He stayed in the shadow of the blessings from Abraham. And though Abraham is older, though the land was given to him, though Abraham was in a position of authority for the sake of harmony with his son nephew, or with his nephew Lot, and because of their testimony to the land that was filled with the people of Canaan, Abraham told Lot, you pick out whatever land you want, and then I will take my servants and my animals, and we will go elsewhere. That's what meekness looks like when it's demonstrated. Now, I'm going to give you a lot of ways it looks like, and here's what your job is today. Your job, you see, you know what people love when they go to church? I'm, I'm guilty of this, too. People love the pastor to give them all of the points of application. Here's how it looks like. Here's what you need to do. Five steps and go do it. People love that. We're a pragmatic culture. We like action. We like things that translate into doing. That's what we like. But that's not always the best preaching. And it's certainly not always the best listening to preaching. Because I could give you 30 applications and somehow miss where you are in your context. And you're going to walk out of here going, well, you know what? I guess meekness doesn't really apply to me. Your job is to take the Word of God, just like mine is during the week, and begin applying it to yourself. So I'm going to give you lots of ways that it demonstrates meekness. Your job is to begin saying each one of them, would I have done that? Do I do that? Do I give the greater blessing to those around me? Because that's what meekness would do. So let's keep going, and you do that while I try to faithfully tell you what the Word of God is saying. Joseph horribly treated i mean come on your brother is born born for adversity the bible says right two maybe a couple ways you could take that one way is your brothers are always going to fight with you or another way is the one that i prefer is that when they get a little older brothers are for you on the day when trials come and they're there to help you well listen here we've got joseph with all of his brothers and they hate him he is kind of a spoiled little brat. He's kind of prideful. He's kind of arrogant. 
Well, they went to go kill him, and then they think better of it because they know it will devastate their father. So they sell him, or they throw him rather, into a well, and he is sold into slavery and taken to Egypt, where God blesses him, and not too long, many years, but not too long, Joseph now is the second in command of all of Egypt just under the Pharaoh. And back where his brothers live with their father, a famine hits the land. They have no food, so they go to Egypt to buy grain. Not knowing that Joseph is number two in command. And Joseph learns who they are. Now Joseph, ready? Now here's what meekness looks like demonstrated. He's got the authority to kill them. He certainly has the authority to put them in prison. But instead, he forgave them, and he showered blessings on them. This is what it means to be meek. Moses, we are told in Numbers chapter 12, was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. You want to see meekness demonstrated? Nobody better than Moses in the Old Testament. He demonstrated meekness repeatedly. Do you remember the time where Aaron, his brother, and Miriam, his sister, Numbers chapter 12, just before this verse, rise up, they're jealous, they want authority, they begin to slander Moses and his marriage to his wife, they begin to get jealous, hasn't God spoken through us as well? Why does he make all the decisions? They're railing against their own brother, the leader of Israel, the most arguably, listen, arguably the most powerful man in the entire earth at that time because no army could withstand God's might. And Moses led Israel. What did Moses do when his brother and his sister did this? He didn't even defend himself. Not once, read the passage, not once did he justify, not once did he defend himself. Rather, he trusted God to defend him, and God did. He calls all three of them to the tent of meeting, meeting, and he judges Miriam, his sister. She comes out of there with leprosy. What does Moses do? Well, here's what meekness looks like. He prays to God on her behalf that she would be restored to health. She's put outside the camp for seven days. The inference is she comes back in, healed. That's what meekness looks like. Moses demonstrates it. Think of David. King Saul hates him. Insanely jealous. Tries to kill him repeatedly. Two times David had him in a place where he could have delivered the death blow with ease. And both times he spared him, entrusting him to God. That's meekness. Jeremiah, the prophet, prophesied over 40 years in Israel, proclaiming faithfully the word of God. Not Listen, not once did Jeremiah ever see fruit for his ministry. You know, we get the luxury... Pastors Tim and Austin and Matthew and I, we get the luxury of sometimes occasionally hearing how these sermons are impacting you and the change that is happening to you. Jeremiah never heard this. Not once did he see fruit for all of his preaching, all of his faithful declaration. His message was unpopular. Listen, you know he wasn't the only prophet, right? There was a lot of prophets at the time of Jeremiah, and they're all peddling a false message. But everybody likes the false message because it promises prosperity. Nobody likes Jeremiah's. 
he is virtually standing alone. For 40 years, he was mistreated. He endured horrible suffering, yet he remained faithful the whole time, yielding his life to God, loving his people. That's what meekness looks like. Stephen, from the New Testament in Acts 8, stoned, which in customary fashion, by the way, meant that you were driven by a mob to a short cliff of about 15 to 20 feet, and you were pushed over the cliff, but the fall would never, almost never kill you. It wasn't designed to, it was to stun you and injure you. And then they would take boulders and rocks, roll them and throw them until you are literally pummeled to death. That's how they did stonings in the Old Testament era, and it moved even into the New Testament. Yet, yet the dying words of Stephen were, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. That's what meekness looks like. There is no vengeance, no retribution in his heart. Think of Jesus, the perennial, preeminent example of, of meekness, who demonstrated it more than anyone. Think of what Isaiah said to him in Isaiah 42. It said of Jesus, he will not cry out, he will not lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. That's meekness. How did you see it? You know, I've read, by the way, I'll answer that question I just asked in a moment. I've read that there was only one time in all of the Gospels that Jesus described himself. Here's what he said. Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the word meek that we have in our text in Matthew 5. I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's his autobiographical sketch. So when he was confronted by the Pharisees and the scribes, in Matthew chapter 23, he responded strength to strength. Weakness, meekness does not equal weakness. But with the lowly, with those broken by sin, he ministered with beautiful gentleness, with uncompromising grace. When he was mocked by King Herod, do you remember that? Before he was crucified, he would not even speak. He showed restraint. This is the man, this is the God-man who created Herod. This is the one who brought all things into existence. When he was judged before Pilate, the Roman governor, Jesus, who is the omnipotent ruler and the sovereign king of the universe, yielded to this troubled and battled pawn of Rome. He was led to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter, not uttering a cry, nailed to the cross, mocked by everyone there, not even a word or a threat of anger to them. Instead, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is what meekness looks like. See, the snapshots of these saints, the snapshot of our Lord and Savior, demonstrate that meekness is authority and power under control. I just basically defined it. I'm going to go a lot more with it in a moment. It's the willingness to yield personal rights. It's a heart of self-control that yields and trusts in God. Let me say that again because this is so good of a springboard into what I'm about to tell you. Meekness is authority and power under control. 
It's the willingness to yield what you perceive as your personal rights. It's a heart of self-control that always is trusting in God. So let's use that to get a bit of a running start. What is meekness defined? I just told you what it looked like demonstrated in the lives of a lot of people. What's it actually mean? It means strength controlled. That is fully committed to the will of its master. Now, the way the Greek people used this word, or at least one of the major uses, was when they would take a wild horse, they would break the horse, and then train the horse to respond to every command of the master. This is the word that describes the horse that is fully yielded and trained. Meekness. It's, it's not a person who compromises easily. It's not a shy personality. It's not a cautious personality. It doesn't mean to be brainless, spineless, fragile, or possess no opinions. Listen, none of that even belongs in the room with the word meekness. That has nothing to do with meekness. The truth is, meekness is compatible mostly with great strength. Every time you see the word meek being used, it's used in connection with great strength. It's the harnessing of wind. It's the breaking and the training of a horse. It's a strong personality. It's a person with authority. But for the meek, now this is important. Oh, this is convicting. This was zinging into me all week, especially yesterday and today. For the meek, the self does not loom large. In fact, it looms small. You know, it dawned on me last Saturday. I haven't told anybody this. I guess this is my confessional. You're my sort of priest. Last Saturday, as I'm driving down here to church, it dawned on me, I didn't even see this, it dawned on me that I have fallen into a rut where even my prayers were being shaped. Lord, let my sermons really be well received. Let me preach well. Let me preach in a way that is gracious, yet all of these thoughts are going through my mind, and the Lord finally opened up my eyes and go, why are you praying so much with you in mind? Why don't you just pray for my word to have its way? Boy, that hurt. I didn't even see that happening in my heart. See, meekness does not have in its own vision self. There is no mirror that when you look at in meekness, it reflects back you. Meekness reflects God and other people constantly. Like Abraham did with Lot, like Joseph did with his brothers, like Stephen did with his murderers. And this is why, now listen, now you get the brilliance of Jesus. He didn't just come up with eight virtues and throw them out in any, you know, sporadic order. This is exactly by design and intention. It's the poor in spirit who grieve at our great capacity to sin that then and only then it empties us of pride in ourselves. If you want yourself to quit looming so large in your mind and in your life, then you've got to get to the, to the poverty of spirit and the grieving of our capacity of sin. It will kill, it will mortify our desire for ourselves. You see, meekness is a teachable spirit. 
It's an approachable person by anybody. They will talk, they will meet, they will give their lives for anybody. It's an absence of retaliation. Meekness, listen, is a refusal to have your own back. Or meaning, what that means is to respond in retaliation. It endures, the meek person endures under suffering, even or especially when the suffering is not fair. I mean, we don't do well with this. This is a divine attribute that Jesus is weaving into the hearts of his disciples. Meek people are ready to listen. They're ready to learn, truly believing that we must learn because in ourselves, we're incapable. We, they, we learn, meek people learn to abandon their rights, to let go of their future because it's in God's hands. Put everything in God in trust. That's what it means to be meek. If we are mistreated, he will repay. If we are neglected, he will draw near to us. If we are without what we really need, he will provide. If we are scorned, he's going to favor us. If we are cursed, he will bless. Meekness occurs as a Christian learns to love being yielded to Christ our Savior and Lord. Now let me say that in this way, what I just said. The more you sit at the feet of Jesus and learn, wanting to be nowhere else, the more he will weave meekness into your heart. And you will no longer be seeing self in the mirror of your thoughts and your actions and your emotions. Now, listen, are you understanding now why meekness is so rare? It's impossible to the world. The unbeliever cannot live this way. And it's too rare for the Christian. So listen, these sermons are wake-up calls to me, just as much as they are to you, that this is the way we have to live. This is not an option. This is not, well, when we get around to it, you know what, when I get 18 and older and I take my walk of faith seriously, no, this is how you live now at 8 and at 12 and 17 and 30 and 80. This is what we need to be. We need to be meek. And it's the work of grace in the heart of those who have seen their helplessness, their dependency on God, whose sin has caused us grief and repentance, and we no longer want to live for ourselves. That's how you become meek. So what is Jesus saying? Well, let me sum it up in this, and then I'm going to go to point two, and then the rest of the message is going to go quicker. Divinely satisfied are those whose hearts are transformed and are being brought under the power of grace to live self-controlled, yielded lives to Jesus because they're going to inherit the earth. And that moves us to point number two. The promise for the meek. Now look what Jesus says. Look at verse five, there's another half of it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What you might not know yet, I hope you will know by the end of this message. This is really important that you understand this. When a Jewish person, which there were probably likely thousands, thousands of them listening to this sermon, when they heard 
for they shall inherit the earth. Something happened to them that's not happening in your mind, and it wasn't happening in mind in mine. Their land and possessing it is a really big deal. It was, and by the way, it still is. At the time of Christ, they lived in the land of Israel, but listen, it was under complete authority of Rome. They could not even exercise stoning somebody. What they did to Stephen was illegal. They could not even execute somebody, which is why Jesus had to be brought before Roman governor Pilate so that the Jewish people could get permission. So they were under the authority and the control of Rome, and they hated it. 63 B.C., roughly around 90 years before Jesus preached this sermon. Pompey seized the Jewish land and brought it under Roman control. He brought an end to Jewish independence totally and completely. And the Jewish people bristled under that. They despised this rule. Now listen, they were fervently praying. They were anxiously awaiting the Messiah. Why? Because they believed. This is all of their hopes of the Messiah. They believed that when the Messiah came, he would politically and militarily free them from Rome, and they would establish their independence again. They would become the center of all the earth, and the nations would bring their splendor into them, just like the day of Solomon. That's what they were yearning for, and a lot of false messiahs were coming, usually being killed. And what happened was there was a group called the Zealots who carried these short little dagger-like swords, longer than a dagger, shorter than a sword, under their cloak, and when they would find in the crowd a Roman citizen, usually of importance, they would find a way to get behind them, and they would stick the sword into their kidneys and put it back under the robe and slink away in all of the confusion and commotion. This was happening when Jesus was on the earth. This was going on. Finally, Rome had enough. And in A.D. 70, to, to put down all of these constant skirmishes, Titus completely destroyed Jerusalem. Listen, slaughtering 1,100,000 Jews. Let that sink in for a moment. The constant tension continued, believe it or not. This is how much land, their land, matters to the Jewish people. They continued. Finally, Emperor Hadrian attacked the entire nation, the entire world, it says, of Jewish people. And with some historians, they say he destroyed 985 towns and villages that belonged to the Jews. He, they had enough. Now, I'm telling you this because when we hear, and they shall inherit the earth, we hear one thing, the Jewish person's soul has just exploded in hope. They want their land back. So Jesus preached, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And these words, which would have given such joy to those listening, 
They didn't understand the promise was future. Beyond that century, beyond, listen, beyond 1948 when Israel became a state, it was beyond that, it's beyond even when it was just to the Jews, it's to the church where believing Jew, believing Gentile brought together this promise moves to that extreme. The word inherit refers to the receiving of one's allotted portion, one's rightful inheritance. What's it mean? You know, Paul said in Romans that Abraham had been promised, listen, not the, wor- not the earth, but the world. Did you hear that? This is in Romans. It's in the New Testament. It's a nod. What he's speaking of, what Paul is speaking on, is a nod to the return of Christ where he consummates his kingdom over the whole earth and over all people. And listen, those who are meek will be ruling with him in his kingdom. They will inherit that kingdom. And this is what Psalm 149.4 says. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble. The word means meek. With what? With salvation. If you want to be saved, meekness is a necessary virtue that Christ will put into your heart. And since meekness is a work of grace in the lives of those who believe in him, they are saved and they will reign with him over the whole earth when he returns. Now listen, what's it mean to inherit the earth? It's all the way back to Genesis 2. We're going to have the entire earth to subdue, to enjoy, to work, to play in, to have. It's going to be ours. It's an incredible blessing that's coming to the meek. You know how the meek are described? Paul describes them in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Listen, if you don't have a big house, you don't have a lot of money, you don't have a nice car, who cares? You got Christ, you got everything. You don't have a lot of good health, I do care, but you've got everything. You've got all the blessings of God that have found their amen in Christ. And we are drawing from this inheritance now. The inheritance is future, but you're drawing from it now. That's the grace of God. He lets you get some of it now. And Paul talks about it, or Peter does. His divine power has has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now listen, if I were you, I would underline all things because it doesn't say most things, not some things, not the majority of things. It's all, and that's all that all ever means. Paul puts it this way. This is a confusing couple verses, but listen to what he says. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, Christian, Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, that's Peter, or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. You know what he's saying? Just as surely as everything belongs to Christ, everything belongs to you. The guarantee is that those who are meek and in the kingdom will inherit and co-heir with Christ. That's our future. That's ahead of us. But there's one more part to our message today, and it's this, point number three. The examination for meekness. Is it in you? 
is it in you? Christian, I believe that Jesus wants you to become increasingly, just like me, full of meekness. He didn't dump a whole heart full in you the moment you got saved. He got you on the journey. The more you sit at his feet, the more you learn to yield to his authority, the more that you trust in him, the more that you quit looking at self, the more meekness you're going to have, the more joy you will have, the more divine satisfaction that will be in your life, your life will get better and better. And your vision shifts to the future rather than the present. I don't have it now, but it's all coming to me soon. That's the idea, that's the vision, that's the mindset of the meek. Now, one of the ways to examine this, in fact, I'm going to tell you, I think, maybe the best way, is to flip to Psalm 37. There's a principle in hermeneutics, which just simply means there's a principle in studying the Word of God, that Scripture always interprets Scripture. If you don't know what something means, God will teach it to you somewhere else in the Word of God. Find as a detective where it is. And Psalm 37 will teach you how to see if meekness is in your heart. Five times, five times in Psalm 37, you see the phrase, inherit the land. Look with me, verse 9, verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, verse 34. That's kind of a hint. When you see it over and over, that's the Bible's way of saying this psalm's all about what's coming. It's all about your future, those who are in God by faith through Christ. The anchor verse is verse 11. Everything explodes on both directions from verse 11, which in Hebrews is virtually identical to Matthew 5, 5 in the Greek. Here's what it says in verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Now, we've already got some clues even in that verse. What's it mean to be meek? You're filled with abundant peace. Now. Not one day, now. It means you don't ruffle a lot. It means because you're joined with God in a relationship, there is a calm settlement in your heart. And it's abundant, not just enough that you need to get by. It is overflowing peace. And it will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And it will stay with you regardless. But this psalm describes in detail what meekness is and how the meek person lives and it really offers a great way of searching our hearts to see if meekness is in there let me give you five ways to do that and we'll be brief the meek trust in god and are faithful look at verse three they trust and they do good even when verse one those who are not believers seem to be prospering all around you and you don't it's your unbelieving friends taking incredible vacations that you can't afford. It's people that are just not nice people living in massive houses, and you're in your little one that's barely enough for your family. And they seem to live such carefree lives, but the meek know that in the end, we will inherit the earth and be co-heirs with Christ of all things. They trust in God, and they are faithful. There's no selling out for the meek. There's no, God, you know what? Where were you? Where were you when that happened to me? Forget it. You're not meek. 
you're full of yourself and full of distrust. The gospel of grace will bring you back to putting your trust in God. And when you do, he'll begin to flood you with peace. And you will trust in him and you will be faithful. Look at the second one. The meek delight in God. Do you delight in God? Let me tell you what it means and then you can answer that question. Do you delight in God? Verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And every prosperity theologian quotes this one. They don't understand. It's, co- it's totally in a different direction. Delight yourself in the Lord and he's going to pour into your hearts his desires. So you will want what he wants and you won't want what he doesn't want. Listen, if you want to overpower sin, then you've really got to stop wanting sin. And you and I don't have the power to do that. Jesus does. The more you delight, the more you sit at his feet, the more you yield your heart to him. He's replacing your desires. He's stripping out the wrong ones, and he's putting new ones in. And pretty soon you begin to hate it. You begin to hate that sin. And you begin to love how you feel when you're walking with God because once again you're filled with abundant peace. See, secular and too much Christian counseling will tell you you've got to work harder to defeat that addiction. You've got to work harder to defeat that problem. You know what the gospel says? Now listen, some of you aren't going to agree with this. Here's what the gospel is going to teach you. You don't have the power to change it. God does. The gospel is going to teach you that he's glad to give it to you. But delight yourself in the Lord. What's that mean? What's that even mean to delight yourself in the Lord? You know what the word means, ladies? Listen to this. It means to be soft, delicate, feminine. In the Hebrew, it's onag. It means to be soft, delicate, feminine. It implies a heart that is so much like a feminine woman. Tender, beautiful, supple in God's hands. That's the heart of delight. If you delight in the Lord, your, your heart is supple. It is shapeable to his desires so that you'll become more like God every day. Listen, if you are a naturally stubborn, obstinate, rebellious person, you're not meek. If you're a person that will get through that defiance and you will find your way back on your knees figuratively or literally before the Lord, you're finding meekness because you're yielding control to him again. You might be upset with him for a while. Listen, who doesn't find the Psalms? They did. You might doubt him for a while. Who doesn't? We all do. But it will find its way back to faith. Your heart will find its way back to trust. And when you do, that suppleness will come back to your heart. It will be a heart of the meek that truly loves more than anything to be made more and more like Jesus. Well, the third one, Remember, this is all self-analysis. Look at your heart. The meek commit their ways to God. The word commit literally means roll. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Let me explain it. It means to roll. It means to, it's the person, the meek person who rolls and, listen, watch this, who hands and heaps all their way, look at the verse, all their way, meaning all their business, all their relationships, all their health, all their fears, all their frustrations, all their goals, all of their expectations. They keep rolling them, throwing them, handing them, heaping them on God. That's what it means to commit your way to him. It means I don't have the power 
I don't have the ability to handle this. I'm Psalm 131. Things are too great and wonderful for me. So I have stilled my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Therefore, O Israel, put your hope in God forever. That's what it means to be meek. It means things are too big. You give it to God. You heap it. You hold it. You hand it. You roll it. You give it to him. He takes it and he gives you peace. And he shows you what it's like to live at his throne, at the foot of his throne. The meek know they can't cope with the complexities and the pressures of life, so they give them to God. The meek know that when they're accused, and who of us hasn't been? When we're falsely accused, listen, don't defend yourself. Let God defend you. Let God bring forth, look at the verse, your justice like the noonday sun. God will exonerate you when it's his time. But the meek learn not to fight back. It's strength under control. How are you when somebody accuses you? How are you when somebody blames you? How are you when someone does something that really, really bothers you? What's your response? The response that Christ is creating in you is strength under control, yielded fully to God, does not need to strike back, does not need to speak back, does not need to defend yourself. You roll it, you heap it, you put it to God, and he takes care of you. That's what meekness looks like. Fourth, the meek are still before God. Now listen, this is so misunderstood, this word, this verse. Still does not mean free from thinking. You don't put your mind in neutral. Listen, let me warn you. Ready? Listen to this, please. Pay attention. This is so important. You put your mind in neutral, the devil says, now I've got an opportunity. Don't ever do that. The mind is meant to be captivated. The mind is meant to be captured. Take captive your mind. All things for Christ. So the mind is in motion perpetually. You don't put it in neutral. That's when the devil will breathe his lies. Still does not mean free from thinking. It means free from frenzy, anxiety, and agitation. Things get difficult. What do the meek do? They don't take matters into their own hands in an ungodly way. They go to God and they get their mind directed to truth. They begin to look at the word of God. They begin to remind themselves how God has been faithful. They begin to re-listen to the testimonies of those around them as God has been faithful to them. It's the mind that is perpetually in motion towards Christ and truth. The meek are still before God. And then fifth and final, the meek refrain from anger because their passions are under control. Refrain from anger, verse 8, and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it it tends only to evil. Fret does not mean anxiety. Fret means to blaze up quickly in anger. The meek are those whose hearts are trusting and delighting in God, free from blazing up in anger, free from anger, full of the abundance of peace. Verse 11. Now we know why, now we know why meekness is so contrary to the world. Unfortunately, it's also too rare to the church. 
Yet this is what the transforming grace of God is doing in our hearts. And let me end this message by taking you all the way back to the very first one in the series. Listen to this very closely, please. Jewish disciple-making was incredibly well-developed. It began with all Jewish children attending school at age six, boys and girls called Beth Sefer. And then at age 10, the boys could go on in their schooling. The girls went home just a few later, years later. They're going to be married. The boys would go on, and if, they, if the, the really good students would now enter into the second phase, Bet Talmud, and then after that, at age 14, only the very, very best of the students could go on, and they would enter into Bet Midrash. And the way that that worked, that Bet Midrash went from 14 to 30 years old. And the way that you entered into Bet Midrash was you found a rabbi and you asked the rabbi, can I please become your Talmud, your disciple? The rabbi would give you an incredibly rigorous interview, asking you detailed questions, not only about the Old Testament law and the scriptures, but how you interpret it, how you ask questions, how you learn, and if they were satisfied that you could be a student that could learn to be like them, they would bring you in, you would change from a student to a disciple. Here's what the disciple would do. This is it. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. The disciple would learn the rabbi's yoke, Y-O-K-E, which means his interpretation of the scriptures. The rabbi would teach and teach and teach and model, and they would live with the rabbi so that the disciple could become exactly like the rabbi knowing what the rabbi knows, living like the rabbi lives. That's the goal of Jewish disciple-making. The student becomes a disciple, the disciple becomes like the rabbi. And they were expected. In fact, the rabbi would not take you and not keep you unless you fully yielded to his authority and you learned. You sat at his feet and learned. Now, Christian brother and sister, Jesus I'm speaking to the Christians. Jesus is at work in you. He's in wor at work in me. He's at work to make you just like him. And he's showing us what his heart looks like. It's the Beatitudes. And he's showing us how his heart moves him to live perfectly before his father. That's the rest of the sermon. And he's going to slowly transform our hearts to be like his, our lives to be lived like his. And all the while, we are sitting at his feet. We're learning from him. We're walking with him, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And if you do that, learn from him, sit at his feet, walk with him. If you do that, you will find meekness creeping in more and more in your life. It will be strength under control, which yields to the authority of God and is divinely satisfied and happy. That's the Beatitudes. Amen? Let's pray.